Plugs Play Pedagogy, Episode 10, Exploring the Past, and I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University. If you've listened to my previous episodes, this is going to be an unusual one. So here's what I did. I made a long 27-minute audio piece, I know 27 minutes, about exploring the past and a bunch of other things that you'll hear. Um, You'll hear it because I'm going to play it for you in a minute. So that's going to be the biggest chunk of this episode. But here's the thing. Um, I made it not knowing if it was going to be part of this podcast or not. I mean, I thought it probably would, since this is the main place that I share the work I do in audio. But there's a little problem. The audio piece is not really about pedagogy. And really, at, at least on its surface, it's not about the other things we study in rhetoric and composition studies either. I mean, it, it's not about the theory of writing or communication or identity or diversity or really any of those things that we care about in our field. It's just a piece that I really wanted to make. And I think when you hear it, you'll understand a bit more about why that is. So to make the piece fit, I emailed two friends, Jody Shipka and Jen Michaels. And I I asked them these two simple questions. One, what does my piece bring to your mind? And two, what in my piece could inform pedagogy in some way? So you hear what I was doing, right? I was trying to save the piece for this podcast, trying to find a way to shape its ideas into the focus of this show, which is about teaching, writing, and rhetoric in the 21st century. And luckily, there's no surprises here. Jody and Jen absolutely nailed it. I mean, these are smart, smart people with spectacular teaching ideas who are both in their own way interested in exploring the past. That's why I turned to them. So after you hear my original piece, you'll hear their informal recorded responses to it afterwards. So that's the whole episode. It's my big chunk, a little bit from Jody, a little bit from Jen. So so I'm trying to transition into my piece without saying, without further ado, because I, I have kind of a lot of trouble saying that without imagining myself as this guy who in like 1916 at a big uh, local movie palace wearing a straw hat is like, hey, without further ado, let's start the show um, in some kind of a funny early American accent. But, you know, as it turns out, as you'll hear in a second, 1916 is an important year in the piece I'm about to play. So I'm, I'm just going to own it and say it. Without further ado, let's explore the past. The story I want to tell starts with a man named Oscar Wilson, who was born in Missouri on August 4th, 1875, before he moved with his parents to Rockford, Illinois, the city where I live. I'm not related to Wilson, and he wasn't a public political figure or anything. He isn't in any books that I know about, but I still know a lot about him. I know that he worked as a printer, and I know the address of where his business was. I know a lot about his family, and oddly enough, I know a lot about their deaths. Like, I know that his mother-in-law died in his house when she was visiting. And I know the dates that his parents died. I know the dates when he and his wife died. And I even know when his two daughters, Sarah and Frances, died. I'm pretty sure I even know the color of his hair and eyes. They're both brown, I think. But I'm not positive. And I say I'm not sure because I can't quite tell if I'm reading his handwriting correctly. Yes, I know what his handwriting looks like, too. Um, when I look at his World War I draft card. So here's a clip of myself thinking out loud a bit immediately after I found that draft card, the very first time I read it. Hard to explain. I just kind of keep looking at it over and over and staring at it over and over. I mean, here on the back, um, I'm just seeing now I have um, medium height, medium build, um, 
color of eyes, color of hair. I think that says brown. It's so hard to read the handwriting. The scan isn't very good. There's a question, has the person blah, 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 physically something? And it says no. And then, um, oh, the date of the registration, here we go. It's 1918. I almost feel like it says August 16, 1918. I'm starting to look up exactly when the war was over. and Maybe that's it. Maybe he wasn't actually drafted till the end. Um, that's why he didn't go anywhere. Okay, here's why I'm telling you all of this. Oscar Wilson lived in my house. Or really, I should say that I live in a house that was first occupied by Oscar Wilson. I've only been here a couple of months, but Oscar and his family were the first and longest residents here from the mid-19-teens to the mid-1950s. And I found that when I start researching this, I start Googling and searching the old newspaper databases, I don't want to stop. I want to find all the things. And I'm starting to realize that this might be a little bit creepy, too. So I'm not here to tell you all the things I've discovered. I mean, you really don't want to hear all of that. But I want to think out loud a little bit here to explore the history, this house, and this odd part of myself that wants to dig and dig and dig. I'll start with some clips of a conversation I had with my good friend, Michael Smith, who also lives in a very old house here in Rockford. Among his many excellencies, Michael is also one of the leaders of Rockford Redux, a group of people that recently saved a historic stone entranceway from the Rockford Cabinet Company after it burned down recently. You can um, check them out at rockfordredux.com. So he is someone who knows and cares about preserving old buildings and living in them. So I invited him over to show him some of the newspaper stories I've been telling him about so much and to to talk through some of what I've discovered and to, to think out loud with him a little bit. So I started by showing Michael some pictures that I had found in the newspapers. This first one from 1967. This is a a teenager, Dave Harrington. He was 16 in 67, and he um, hitchhiked across the country with his friend, who was also a 16-year-old, and then um, has a a story that the headline is, Two Youths Tell Hitchhiking Tips. And there's this picture here of Dave outside my house. Wow. Wow. And, like, what it looked like in, in the 60s. And there's this little cat up there in the corner. And you can't really see much of it, right? You can just see the stairs. Sure. You can't even tell if the the um, stone steps that I have now, I have no idea how old those are. I can't even tell if those are still there. Um, it doesn't, doesn't quite look like it. Right. But, but for me, there's something. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I've been there. Like, I feel like sitting down on my front steps right where he's sitting right now. And there, there's almost a – and if I sit there, I can be like, I remember – I remember the time that Dave sat here and showed his map of where he hitchhiked yeah. to the Rockford Morning Star reporter. Right. There's this little part of me that like thrills when I see that. Yeah. But I, I guess I'm partly trying to figure out why that is. What is it that makes me... Yeah, so there's an author named Eric Jacobson who writes his first book, which is probably his best known, is called Sidewalks in the Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to talk about new urbanism and, and the Christian faith, but he really talks more about the former than the latter. And yeah. uh, So one of the cases that he tries to make for old places is just the, the patina and the well-wornness that you get. 
Um, as you see the steps that are worn up to the high school that's been there for so long or the well-worn handrail and things like that, it just reminds you of people that have gone before and people that have built this place that you're now carrying on from generation to generation. And that's, that's something that you don't get when you go into a big box store or when you ride the escalator at the suburban development mall, things like that. So he really just tried to make a case to say, if we're going to uh, boy, honor the the built environment that our ancestors uh, have done. It's it's a good way to to be mindful of that, not mm-hmm. just to simply replace things because it's old and worn out. But yeah. that patina is something that is earned with time and is indeed valuable. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I like that. I like that word patina. Then we looked at a few more pictures, one that might actually be my kitchen, one that might be my sunroom. It's a little hard to tell sometimes from the labels if they were actually taken here or not. And and by the way, do you hear the weird way that I'm saying my, like my kitchen, like I own it and I always have. Okay, I, I just had to point that out. But here's more of Michael's thoughts after we looked at some more pictures. Well, the fact that you actually have pictures is pretty incredible because, you know, obviously we don't have like the plethora uh, they didn't have the plethora of digital cameras or just cameras back then. Uh, and if there were photos taken, you might get maybe find your neighbor uh, or the people that lived here. Yeah. But oftentimes you're not getting interior pictures of the house. In fact, we don't have any mm. uh, from our house. So our house is about 91 years old now. And we do have one picture of young kids that were playing in the yard. And that's as close yeah. as we've gotten. So um, to have interior photos three of them at least is is pretty spectacular well and it makes you wonder i mean i a number of people have said oh garfield avenue that's where the fancy people used to live back in the day and and there there is a little bit of it's so easy to forget that right that i'm i'm looking at the history of privileged people and that's that's why i'm able to read these things because i'm i'm looking at, at the, you know if if it were a different family different different neighborhood um, a lot of these things would have just been erased as, as you know, non-privileged people are so often erased from history. Okay, I should admit that when I start telling people about the history of this house, and, and by the way, I tell people about this house all the time, and I actually have no idea how detailed a description to give anyone ever because I could just go on and on. So so if you see me sometime, you can ask me about it, but tell me how much you want. To, okay, um, but when, when I start telling people about the house, and, and my wife Margot is in the room, she often brings up one thing, the yearbooks. And she's right too, actually. The yearbooks are where I least trust myself. Okay, to explain what I mean, let me read an Instagram post of mine from a couple of weeks ago. Here's exactly what I wrote. Creepy slash not creepy. Looking up info about the people who lived in your house in the 20s and 30s. Finding the girls' yearbook photos at the local used bookstore. Searching the signatures for their names. That caption went along with photos from old yearbooks. Um, Two people answered my question if this was creepy or not. One one said no, one said both. Okay, I can explain. The, The best book and record store in Rockford is Toad Hall Books and Records. Finest house on the whole river, cried Toad boisterously. Or anywhere else for that matter, he could not help adding. 
It's a massive, meandering place with piles of everything everywhere. Amazing Rockford-focused, loving people who, who work there. I, I love it a lot. And um, I was there with a friend who was visiting from out of town. I often take people there. And when I suddenly remembered something, there's a corner that I'd seen before but hadn't really explored that has a ton of old Rockford yearbooks. And I had a pretty good idea of when Sarah and Frances Wilson were in school. Remember, those are Oscar Wilson's daughters, the first family that lived in my house. So I sat down in that corner and I started thumbing through the yearbooks, looking alphabetically for the name Wilson, and it didn't take long to hit gold. And you know, you know, once you find one, it's pretty easy to find more. So, you know, since I found that Francis, for instance, was a, a junior at Rockford High School in 1932, and since Sarah was five years older, I could deduce what years they might have graduated, which other yearbooks might have had photos with them. So, so eventually I found um, two of them. I found one yearbook that had um, Sarah's junior picture and then another one that had, um, I think, Francis's junior picture as well. Around this part of the story is when my friend came into that corner of Toad Hall to see what I was up to, and I explained what I was doing. I showed her I had found that Francis was in the a cappella choir at the French club and the Latin club, and my friend was, was pretty enthusiastic, but, you know, eventually, as normal people do, she said she was ready to go downstairs and browse somewhere else, and, okay, this is where I, I couldn't stop myself. Instead of going down with my friend, I hastily started looking through the two books I had found with the girls' photos, and I started looking for their signatures. You know, and it's hard to explain why this suddenly seemed so important to me, but I, I knew it would be something special if I had a piece of paper in front of me that they had signed, or maybe written even more on, you know, like the, the kinds of things we write in yearbooks now are pretty similar to the kinds of things people wrote in yearbooks back then, at least from my itty-bitty uh, searching of them. And really, I, I spent quite a long time up there looking for signatures, almost freaking out when an entire page was written by Francis Johnson, a name that looks a lot like Francis Wilson when it's in cursive. My friend assured me that it did not say Wilson, it said Johnson, and I was kind of sad and walked away. So, okay, I eventually walked away without finding any signatures, but I have to admit that I mostly walked away out of a polite desire to not make my friend sit there forever, and, and I really want to admit that uh, a lot of me these days thinks about going to other antique stores and bookstores in town and the area to find more yearbooks to look for. You, you know, you get it. I, I want to keep looking. So this is why my wife brings up the yearbooks. It's, it's an example of that line between politely knowing a thing or two about your house and refusing to get up before you look at every single page of a 1932 yearbook. It's that line where you're not sure if you've gone too far or not. And I love that she helps me remember that there is a line because I don't always know it myself. So I talked to my friend Michael a bit about Sarah and Francis, about how eventually I was even following their relationships through these newspaper clippings. Um, there were articles saying that Sarah was married with kids, um, but I, I kept wondering about Francis, who, you know, the younger one. I kept wondering if she was going to get married or if she even wanted to. And um, and then I, I read this article about about this wedding, and this is kind of what it's all building up to, yeah. to here. That, um, let me just read a little bit of this. With just members of their two immediate families present, Miss Frances Wilson and James Willard Hurst exchanged wedding vows in an informal ceremony yesterday afternoon at four o'clock at the home of the bride's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Oscar F. Wilson on Garfield Avenue. So so the second I read that, I just like pause and like, oh my goodness, right here. And it even says like in front of the fireplace. Oh, wow. Like That's right amazing. there. They, they got married. Um, after I've kind of been building up to this kind of Oh my goodness, is, is she happy? Is she not happy? Yeah. Uh, 
I don't know, what, what do I do with that? <laughs> sure. I should say here that I know a good deal about Sarah and Francis. I, again, because of all these newspaper articles, I know where they went to college. I know the date of Sarah's car crash near the country club. Don't worry, she wasn't hurt. I know the names and jobs of their husbands and the names of their kids. I'm pretty sure that this isn't as creepy as it sounds, actually. I mean, the old newspapers kind of took the place of social networks back then. Yeah, you, you do. As you look, especially to the Rockford Morning Star, I mean, it was the social network. Was that whether it was um, content coming to the Morning Star or the Morning Star going to the individuals, but it does feel almost uh, sometimes gossipy a little bit in particular yeah. places. Okay, so if you think of me as a, as a Facebook stalker reading posts from 70, 80, 90 years ago, maybe you'll understand how excited I was when I finally found a lengthy recording of Frances Wilson's voice. Here's the context. After she married Willard Hurst in 1941 in front of my fireplace, just a couple of months before Pearl Harbor, the couple soon moved to Washington, D.C. to help with the war effort. They had a couple kids there, and after it was over, they returned to Madison, Wisconsin, just an hour or so north of Rockford, where Willard became, according to his Wikipedia page, the founder of the modern field of American legal history. They lived there in Madison, presumably until their deaths. I haven't been able to get a hold of Francis's obituary yet, though I've read Willard's. Francis, who already had a master's in history from Mount Holyoke before her marriage, which, by the way, feels like a pretty big deal for a woman in the 1930s. Again, I don't know enough about American history to say for sure, but it seems like a big deal. After she got married, she lived the, the life of an active academic spouse, eventually getting another master's degree, I think in the 60s, this time in political science. And as far as I can tell so far, she was really involved with various public art projects in Madison, even writing a little book about public art in Madison, Wisconsin. So I, I don't know a ton more than that because I've only been searching Rockford newspapers, but you know that's a, that's a so far. I'm still, still going to keep looking. So as a, as a prominent woman in Madison, she was married to an even more prominent law professor at UW. Both Frances and her husband Willard were interviewed in the early 80s by Laura Smale, who was a researcher at UW-Madison. And her audio tapes, this is the, the amazing part, her audio tapes have been digitized and put online at UW-Madison's library site as part of their oral history project. So here's how Frances, now in her 60s, introduced herself. I was born Francis Wilson in Rockford, Illinois in 1917. Okay, and I've got to say that listening to this interview, hearing her voice, I couldn't help but feel even more connected to her. I mean, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years, too. It's one of my favorite cities. I sing in acapella choirs, too, just like she did in high school. And I was in the French club, too. Um, I'm a writer. She was a writer. As a professor, as someone who went to grad school for a long, long time, I love being part of university culture. And she talks about that, too. Oh, I, I have uh, loved it because see, I was the first generation of my family to go to college. And it was just great. Just opened up, opened up the world. I also should admit that um, since I went to college, I've been one of the more politically liberal members of my immediate family. And again, that's something that she describes in her interview. Your own tradition was a, was a liberal one, presumably. No. No? <laughs> I'm the only liberal in my family. 
Had you, had you switched by that time? or did it Yes, come? I think it was college. Mm. And, you know, I'm also a university person who is married. And as I listened to Francis speak, I found myself thinking about the complex relationships that so many people have to their partner's work. Did, did he discuss his work with you? No. At first, I used to read his manuscripts, but he didn't um, like it when I... Um, uh, would make comments about the style. I thought I was a pretty good writer, you know, I, my newspaper experience, but of course he had a college newspaper experience. He was the editor of the high school paper and the college paper both. <laughs> uh, and I never, um, I never typed for him like lots of wives do. Um, so it came to where I didn't even uh, uh, read, uh, read the manuscripts. Um, and, uh, and this is where the, the researcher's role gets complicated. I'm tempted to listen to all those pauses and fill in the gaps. You know, like I find myself wanting to say, well, Willard didn't know how brilliant his wife was. And there she is kind of trying to make him look good. But obviously he wasn't that great. Um, I mean, like I'm actually getting defensive about this person who lived in my house 75 years ago, which is bizarre, but, but true. But then after um, I start thinking that, then she'll say something else that makes me like him a lot more, and I end up not being able to decide. Also, he, he always wanted things to be equal between us. He was never one of these Germanic husbands that put his wife down. For instance, when we got married, he made sure that we bought two equal reading chairs and two equal reading lamps. There wasn't going to be a big chair for Papa like in some households, you know. Um, so <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Never thought about that. I mean, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. I went to a house for dinner the other night, and I was uh, uh, fascinated that this man, who is a, a, a great crusading uh, a liberal, or has been for uh, um, um, minorities, you could just see this corner with the, the big comfortable chair and all <laughs> with his. <laughs> So I can't help but draw this conclusion. Even as the intimacy of sound and voice in some ways connects the researcher to the people being researched, that sense of realism still isn't the real thing. It's not a full, complete, contextual communication event. It's still just a digital sound file from the past. And I'm still the one doing the interpreting. This whole project is one that isn't very well suited to this medium of sound, which I turn to more because I like it and feel comfortable here than because it makes the most sense for this project. I mean, I can't show you the pictures and news clippings I found except by saying, hey, after this is over, go look online here, you know? And, and I've really been trying, actually, to, to orally document my discoveries, but that hasn't really turned out very interesting or useful. So I'm walking over to the uh, public library so I started searching and, um, for those records, and um, just now, I just uh, pulled up his draft registration card. It's on, I'm listening to an interview with Francis Hurst. I mean, I'm digging up the past here, and none of those are actual sounds from the past. I mean, I have Francis's interview from 1983, and I have a, a lot of music from 1916, the, the year the house may have been built. 
But there's so many sounds I don't have. What did Oscar Wilson's printing press sound like? I mean, I can find a source of a printing press, but it's not his press. It doesn't have the allure of a signature, or say of an original floor or original window that the Wilson family used daily. What did the daily bustle sound like around here? And actually, I, I think I want to end with one more clip of my conversation with Michael, because it makes me think about the sounds that have been sounded here and how much has been lost to time and what my response to that might be. There's, I have three articles here, three articles um, about, oh, here's the headline. Francis and Sarah stage some private theatricals. Sarah is <laughs> five years older than Francis. Yes. Um, I'll just read, read a bit of this first one. It was Francis's idea. In spite of the fact that Frances is only five years old, she has the gift and the ambitions of the born showman. And since she was three years old, she had wanted to stage a show. Wednesday afternoon, the ambition was achieved. She and her sister Sarah, who is ten, put on a program of high-class vaudeville in the garden of the home of their parents, (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Oscar Wilson, at our address. A big audience came to delight the hearts of the producers and, incidentally, to help raise money for the Rockford Children's Home. About two whole dollars, it doesn't say whole, about two dollars will be turned over to the home fund as a result of the benefit performance. Um, Wow. I guess this is my favorite line. Francis was an enthusiastic, if not a stately, goddess of liberty at the close of the program when the Star Spangled Banner was sung. (laughs) So, so again, it's it's gossipy in a way, but it's also yeah. really adorable. Well, it is. And it almost makes it feel like because it's in the paper, it's official. Like, I know that, I mean, that your house is, is spacious, you know, much bigger than ours. But you almost feel like they had an audience mm-hmm. that they would have had a large number here. And to be honest, it might have just been, you know, just the family. So, but because <laughs> it's in the paper and is given so much real estate, you almost feel like this, the whole block attended and it yeah. was something to see. <laughs> well, and I, and again, here's where, I, where the, the reality of where I am, um, the, the house has a, a white picket fence around it. And I don't know if there were really white picket fences in the twenties and the chances of it being the same one, I think are almost none. I, I don't really know anything about this. Um, but still, when I look out the window, um, you know, we're on the second floor right now in one of the old bedrooms that we've turned into an office. And, and I look out there and I try to think, where was it? Which little sure. corner of yard? Where did they set this up? Where, where was Francis a um, enthusiastic, if not stately goddess of liberty? And, and that, I mean, that just gives me chills, the yeah. thought that this, this thing that was in the paper 195 years ago. Sure. I, yeah, that, that actually happened and it's just... Not even a stone's throw away. I mean, it was it's on your property. So, yeah, you almost feel in a sense, I mean, I, certainly I do living in an old home. We feel like we're trustees, mm-hmm. right? That we've been, we're benefactors. We've been given something and we look forward to passing it on, even if we're just there for a short time. Yeah. So, yeah. So to have access to some of this archival content, uh, it is it is really humbling. And there's the front door that we have that still has the original hardware. And yeah. oftentimes I'll open that or the the closet and say, well, Oscar Zanzinger, who was the first, sorry, John Zanzinger, uh, was the first guy who built, lived in our house, and he opened this door once, 90 years ago, to get a coat to go out on a winter day, and yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Nights are growing very lonely, days are very long, I'm a growing weary for your song. 
I like the way Michael calls us trustees, people who can feel honored to preserve the past and pass it on. Where I'm left is wondering where the role of sound is in all this. I mean, should I, can I record various sounds as part of what I pass on for others to find when they learn about me in a hundred years, combing through my tweets and my Facebook posts? If so, I mean, what what do I record? I mean, a couple of days ago, I was crouched in the gap behind my old broken fridge, which is going to be replaced today, actually. And I I captured the sound with my phone of the whirring condenser fan, which I could have easily stuck my finger or toe into while I was back there with the back of the fridge taken off. Is that sound even valuable to the future? That, That record of the appliance that I just couldn't fix that I worked on for so many hours. I swear I did. And I watched so many YouTube videos about how to fix, but that I eventually replaced. Is that a sound that should just drift away? Or should that sound push onward into the future? Thanks to Michael Smith, the University of Wisconsin-Madison for having an awesome oral history project, and to archive.org's collection of digitized 78 RPM records and cylinder recordings, which you've heard a lot of throughout this piece. Also thanks to my house, where I recorded this, sitting on the sun porch on a July day with the windows open, letting the ambience into my recording, all those car sounds and birds and things like that I wanted you to hear, along with all the memories in this place. I'm Kyle Stedman. Okay, that was the entire piece that I sent to my two friends, as I explained earlier at the beginning. So so now let's hear the first response. This one's from Jody Shipka, who teaches at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She tweets at Remediate This and is currently working on a project called Inhabiting Dorothy. And you can find out more about that and some of her other projects at RemediateThis.com. So as I listened to this piece, I was struck by a number of things. Um... First off, I think what really resonated with me, and I'm going to talk about you and your project a lot, but really um, I think I related to it because I feel a lot of the same things and I do a lot of the same kind of rhetorical moves that I feel you're sometimes doing here. Um, But I was struck by, on the one hand, your great passion, um, and I think you term it obsession, a more pejorative term, but your great passion for this project and these lives and and the curiosity that you have about them. And at the same time, this distancing move or or an apology about it, like, you know, am I crossing the line? Is this getting out of hand? And um, it made me really think about where, you know, what are the roots of the passion and at the same time, the apology or that distancing move. And I wonder if Generally, it's that sense that to be too passionate, to be too emotionally invested in one's work is somehow a sign of not being scholarly enough, not being disinterested, not being objective enough. Um, And, you know, I don't think most things are worth doing unless you're passionate about it. And one of the problems I've had with scholarly pursuits in general is this feeling, and maybe it's self-imposing, I don't think so, that to be too passionate, um, to be too involved will somehow make me seem like less of a serious or rigorous scholar than somebody who can be more distanced or feign that, that distance. Um, 
so on the one hand, I wonder about the role of passion in, in academic or even pedagogical pursuits. But I think, again, with the scholarly, it's seen a little bit different than um, being passionate about pedagogy. The other thing, you know, I wondered is whether or not part of the apology has to do with the focus of one's work. Um, ordinary, for the most part, dead people. And you talk a little bit about how people, you know, with with privilege, of privilege, are the people who tend to be remembered um, because they can leave the traces or because they, they are just valued. And I wonder again, whether or not apology comes from being passionate or being passionate about people and things that haven't been vetted in, 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 in ways that other people and things have. So, you know, again, these are ordinary people, um, for the most part. And, um, you know, thinking about studying dead people, that's been something that they've done in, you know, many different disciplines. Think about literature and history. Um, but again, is it that it's been an emphasis on vetted people, right? People we should be looking at as opposed to the everyday people like me, people like the person I pass on the on the street. Are those lives worth remembering, worth researching? Um, so again, it you know, kind of gets to the gatekeeping function, not only of emotion, but also of who or what deserves scholarly attention. In terms of thoughts on your project in particular, I was really taken by that question of, you know, what traces or evidences, evidence of a life can or cannot be captured and conveyed through a sound project like a podcast. And I think as I listened to that, my reaction was the same, like, why is this a podcast when I want to see so much? And certainly hearing from your subject was fitting for a podcast, but... Um, and it was it was interesting. Just I always like to explore kind of the limitations. Where how do you convey something sonically that's very visual? Can you do that or um, not? But um, so in, in thinking about that question of what sound does or what sound can convey, um, got me thinking more about the sterility or sanitization of single-mode approaches to scholarship. Um, this idea of clear focus transmission, a lot of it having to do with the efficiency of an audience taking in your information or your argument. Um, here, for instance, are some sounds from my morning. This goes on for most of the day. Here's another one my morning. Dog play. Or fighting. You know, I think about in a lot of our scholarship being written and what kind of things that erases. Not only the visual, the sonic, and the, the things that you touch on, but also thinking about not having the face or the body of the, the researcher clearly depicted. Um... In terms of the sanitization, um, one of the things that, as you were capturing different sounds in your world, made me think about is I'm in the process of doing two simultaneous projects. Um, one I'd term up, and this, I think this is telling, one I'd term a piece of video scholarship, and the other is 
uh, making of that video. And when it comes to sound, I'm not afraid to let the sounds of my life bleed into the making or process component. Um, I'll sometimes acknowledge them like, oh, you know, my dog is acting up or whatever. Um, if they become too intrusive, I'll maybe do a retake. But for the most part in the process video, I'm not afraid of letting those things in. Or, or, and there's a sound now too. Um, not that I'm afraid, they might seem more appropriate. Now when I'm working on the voiceover for the piece of video scholarship, I go to great pains to make sure that people don't call, to turn off the AC, um, to make sure that the dogs are settled and not, not too disruptive. <clears throat> um, and again, just a thought in kind of the differences that I bring to what I'm doing. and, and and I guess more and more I'm thinking, for this kind of work in particular, why not really muddy it up, right? Because I think in looking at strangers or dead people's lives, I'm, I'm thinking about them, but I'm also thinking about um, their lives in relationship to mine. Yet I find myself oftentimes erasing evidence of my life as I'm looking at theirs. Um... Another thought that I had about the project is I couldn't help but envy that you were able to hear your subject. And this gets me thinking about issues of authenticity or the allure of being able to know or experience the dead through multiple modes and in multiple ways. Um, and this reminds me of like my first dead people, um, which it's so weird that I think about them so fondly when I don't... I mean, I do know them from looking at the traces of their lives, but... Um, so I first met this couple, this dead couple named Nancy and Carl, and um, because there was a letter with an address on it, I was able to track down something of their life, and, and I talk about this in greater length elsewhere. Um, but anyhow, long story short, I was eventually able to reconnect with someone depicted in some of these photos, not Nancy and Carl were both dead at this point. Um, and so anyhow, when I you know, met this person depicted in the photos, and her daughter. The daughter had indicated to me that they actually had video of Nancy and Carl and wanted to know if I wanted to come over and, and see this. And um, I remember thinking, oh, you know, I've only seen them in still media, and what would it be like to hear their voices, right, to see them move, all the things that I've only been able to imagine kind of in looking at these still photos. And um, so, again, there's that sense of, of what media conveys best a life, right? And, and what is it that we're privileging? Um, you know, you talk a little, you know, a lot about handwriting and signatures and, and I'm really drawn to this is what is it that we're looking at? And we feel like, oh, well, that captures the person. And, you know, I think a, a lot about, I don't like having photos taken. So for me, my objects say much more about me than, than I would think my handwriting would or photos of me, the things to really know me, it would be my cameras. I'm in my camera collection, for instance. And so it becomes a question that as I'm looking at this, why am I telling their stories through things that we can recognize, right? Their handwriting, their what they look like, um, what they did for a living. Um, how would we create a life through objects? And, and would that even resonate with people? Um, the other thing is, generally speaking, and I've learned a lot um, to combat this through um, you know, Aaron Anderson's work, but the 
tendency to work with these objects and focus on the past, on people, interests, activities that have come before. And um, you get to this a little bit with the conversation about uh, patina and the history of, of built environments. Um, and I think there is that sense of touching something or holding something and thinking, you know, who touched this, who owned this before, as opposed to why isn't it equally as automatic? Or can we train ourselves to touch something and think about the past, but also think about, wow, who's going to touch this after me? And um, again, you get to that with who's going to be in the house after you and what kind of legacy um, is there as a result of you being part of it and you having touched things. Um, this all makes me think about Michael Shank's work, The Archaeologist, and it's unfortunate that his book is so friggin' expensive, but he's got a quote in there um, that something to the effect of, in order to know what something really is, you need to follow its path into becoming something else. And that's really been helpful for me to think about not only the history of things or people, but also at the same time their future, their translations, their transformations as they move through the present into the future. And lastly, in, in terms of uh, pedagogical connections for this, I think the first thing I'd say is getting back to um, the amount of passion that um, you've demonstrated about this project, the idea of you know not wanting to stop, wanting to keep looking, um, the sense of maybe people don't want to hear about this, but I'm going to continue talking about it, or it's going to be difficult not to continue talking about it. And I think how much I'd love to teach a class where every student in the class feels that way about whatever projects they are pursuing, whether in my class or elsewhere. And that in turn gets me thinking about a distinction that I think Jeff Sirk had made with relation to Jackson Pollock's work and the way that Pollock worked, but the distinction between compositions that are things that you are working on versus things that you are working in. Pollock being in the middle of his canvases as he created things. And, and, and I'll feel that distinction for myself. There are things I'm working on, right, with a distance where got to get this done. And there are things that I'm working in where I don't want to stop. I don't want to go to sleep. I can't wait to wake up again and be in that project. So I think, you know, the trick for, um, for a, a lot of teachers is to come up with assignments or activities that will give that student that sense of being excited about what they're doing. And, um, <clears throat> and I have to say that from my very limited experience, there is something really alluring about working with uh, dead people's stuff, stranger stuff um, for students. I think they get caught up in this nostalgia as well, like, wow, who's, who's touched this before, or what can I know about this? And so I think um, a couple of approaches, perhaps taking your piece that you had shared with us, stripping it of the background sounds and music, and just leaving the voiceover, and allowing students to come up with the ambient sounds, um, the soundtrack for that. It would be interesting to see how they choose to populate that um, <clears throat> with other music um, and, and what difference. I think it could be actually really cool. Everybody be familiar with the same kind of voiceover track, interview track, and then you could have them 
just do the first couple of minutes, whether or not you'd have them hear what you did to begin with or not, as an example. Um, I think that would be pretty cool using what you've already created. Um, <clears throat> the other thing would be um, to have students research the history of some kind of built environment, whether if they live in houses that are old enough um, to afford this to, to go about researching, or, or how would you go about researching, doing the kind of work that you've been doing. Um, another thing um, I think that, that I was struck by is I was giving a talk in Utah, and somebody in the audience after I was finished had raised their hands, and, and I'd been talking about this collection of materials that I had purchased in six boxes for $25 at a yard sale. And the person in the audience said, you know, Dr. Shipka, what would be in your six boxes? And and I, I'm still thinking about this. I hadn't thought about it at the time, um, but I think that becomes a question to have people consider that if all that was left of you um, could be contained in six boxes, what would you or not would you want or not want to have in those boxes? And they don't need to be boxes and it doesn't need to be six, but that idea of what traces of your life would be most evident, would you want, would you not want, right? Other people to get a hold of. And and I think that in talking about this, as I've talked about it to people in class, what I want to try and um, avoid is a connection to the idea of, oh, let's make a time capsule. I think students have experience making time capsules, and I think time capsules suggest something of value, whereas what I have in mind with these six boxes is not a random assortment of traces, but the idea of thinking about, all right, what if we collected in a box in a bag for a week all the things that we tend to throw out? Right, so what is absolutely not valued by us? Um, what stories would that tell to somebody who wouldn't necessarily know that these things were valueless? But I think there's a lot of play there to have students think about their own lives, um, archiving their own lives um, in interesting ways. And I think the way that I would want to set this up would be to have students collect um traces of their lives or things that were thrown out or, you know, it could even be, you know, the third thing that you do in a day, leave a record of that. But to have these collections and then maybe switch them with other members of the class so that other, so you still get that sense of mystery, like how do these things add up as opposed to somebody doing more of an autoethnography or autobiography. But I think those are some of the ideas that could come to mind for working with this. The other thing would be to um, there's a lot of collections on Flickr and, and whatnot of found materials. Um, they tend to be um, more pictures and things like that, not collections of sounds, which would be another idea is have people kind of create their own box of, of sounds through their life um, and have them tell stories or make things with those. But the other thing is looking at some kind of an online um support to have people find found objects and create things with them or research them. That was Jody Shipka from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Next, we'll hear a response from Jen Michaels, who's a doctoral candidate at The Ohio State University. You can follow her on Twitter at Jen L. Michaels, and you can learn more about her work at jenmichaels.net. 
Kyle, my first thought when I started listening to your podcast was that although I was really interested in the house and I was especially interested in why you felt like it was creepy to study this house, I was more interested in the town of Rockford. The longer the podcast went on, the more this became a story about Rockford. And honestly, I, I can't decide if that's because that is in fact how you structured it, right? You you start with the house and then you start talking about the house in terms of how you used like Toad Hall books and music as um, a place where you said there were amazing Rockford focused people as a venue for studying how your house fit into the context of this town or how you turned to the Rockford Morning Star newspaper and thought about how this house functioned within its own time period and within the events and trajectory of history. Or if it was because of a word I'm about to drop that might change how Rockford seems to some people who are listening. And that word is the Rockford peaches. I remember we had known each other for a couple years before one day I just turned to you and we were out at like a colleague's dinner. And I said, do you mean Rockford like the Rockford peaches? Um, and for listeners who are not having alarm bells go off in their head, um, the Rockford Peaches were a baseball team, a, a women's baseball team from the 1940s who were popularized by the film A League of Their Own, um, starring Gina Davis. And it's a great film if you've never seen it. It passes the Bechtel test, meaning that there are multiple female characters who talk to each other about things other than men, and they all have names. Um, and this was a really important movie to me when I was younger, and I didn't realize it at the time, but the reason A League of Their Own was so important to me and that I watched it over and over again was because it was one of the only movies I'd ever seen where women talk to each other about having careers, about balancing life and family, about having real lives, but also being impressive athletes, right? And trying to um, do amazing things with sport. And so when I learned that you lived, Kyle, in Rockford, like the Rockford Peaches um, from the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, Rockford became mythic to me. Um, it became a place of legend, right? You lived in a legendary place. And I wonder if that's why, to me, there seems to be nothing creepy about researching the people who live in Rockford or lived in your old house during that time period. I also wonder um, if this just comes from my own relationship with historic homes. During college, I was a tour guide at Monticello, the historic home of Thomas Jefferson, which is right outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, close to the University of Virginia. And I had the most rhetorical job title ever. Um, they didn't call us tour guides. At Monticello, the tour guides are called associate interpreters. And it was very much a rhetorical education in communicating historical concepts and narratives about history. We used to talk a lot on the guide staff about giving tours that weren't just about the quote, real estate, unquote. So there was this sense that you had to take the furniture and the architecture and the stuff and try and transform it into a meaningful narrative that would really resonate with an audience. And I wondered if maybe that's why you felt like what you were doing was creepy, was maybe this implicit fear or this very Midwestern thing that maybe we wouldn't care about the people who lived in your house. Um, and I wonder where that comes from. And that might be something to explore with students, right? Is to think about contexts in which exploring history and the people in it feels really kosher to us culturally um, in the United States. You know, nobody blinks twice at going to Monticello. They got like half a million visitors a year. 
Um, and nobody thinks twice about watching TV shows like Who Do You Think You Are, which is like hour-long genealogy specials about celebrities um, that encourage you to go to Ancestry.com and look up the people that you are descended from. So I wonder if that's part of what's making it creepy is this sense of how do we invest other people into history? And maybe a way that this could be made an assignment. Um, there's a couple things I can think of, but most obviously... I think that any student who's attending a college has some relationship with a mythic space, virtual or real, and I'm talking about campus. Even if you're an online student and maybe you don't go to a campus, there's this imagined thing, this imagined place called the university um, that you've associated yourself with. And that's especially true if you are associated with a campus that has brick and mortar. Um, so perhaps you could have students kind of work together to think through the mythos of a university, right? What spaces in the university do they go to a lot? Which ones do they consider to have some kind of ownership over? You know, things like their secret study spot that they don't want to tell other people about because they don't want people to discover it. Or if they're a commuter student, maybe they have a favorite place to park. So maybe instead of tackling private spaces, like Jody suggested, you could have them tackle public spaces. Um, and it could extend beyond their own personal relationship. They could do essentially what you've done. You know, they could go out into the community to learn more about the university they're at. They could use university archives. They could use something like the digital archive of literacy narratives to record stories or testimonials about the university and how it's functioned in people's lives. They could even maybe, um, how to put this? They could think about how history or other time periods might kind of intersect with the university. And when I say that, I'm really thinking about my own experience on my local campus, the Ohio State University. Professor Nan Johnson, who's an amazing rhetorician, pointed out to me one day that there are all of these World War I monuments all over OSU. And you wouldn't notice them necessarily unless you were looking for them, but they're everywhere. They're on plaques, they're commemorative benches, they're commemorative rocks. There's this one called the Five Brothers, which is trees planted in this certain pattern to represent um, soldiers who left OSU to go off to World War One. And so I'm especially interested in that idea, right? How does the university commemorate events or historic eras in ways that either become invisible or very much downplayed for later generations, just the way that perhaps your house is only now revealing to you through your living it and embodying it and sitting on porches where other people sat. It's bringing to life these other periods of history and these other circumstances for you. In terms of how that could spin into an assignment beyond just exploring the archives, I wonder if you could have students think through what audio can and can't communicate about those things. Um, they could look at podcasts like yours, right? And you could say, like, to what degree could you envision my house or felt like you were there with me? You could have them look at things like a podcast we have here at Ohio State University called Tough Nut to Crack. And the way that Tough Nut to Crack works is that every week, the host, Rain McMullen, who's an undergraduate here at OSU, she gives a riddle about something related to campus history. On the next episode, she reveals the answer to the riddle, and she talks a little bit about the history of that thing. So for example, Rain McMullen had an entire episode just about a building that I pass every day on my way from my car to my campus building, the English department. And every time I pass University Hall now, I think about that podcast, and I think about how the building used to look and the functions it used to have. And it's changed my relationship with that part of campus and many other parts of campus. 
So you might have students even listen to something like Tough Nut to Crack that isn't about a place that they have a mythic relationship with and think about to what degree does audio mediate our relationship with these other spaces, create a story that invests us in it. Um, when they listen to your podcast, maybe, what kind of relationship do they form with your house and how is it similar or different to yours? What does it make them want to do, right? Does it interest them in their own historic places or getting interested in noticing them or maybe not and why? Another thing you might try, and again, I'm leaning here on my history as a tour guide, is you could try having the same students all try to independently use a particular mode, maybe audio or video or image or even just text, and have them try to explain or mediate a piece of history. Um, and it could be something as simple and equipment-free as, okay, everybody look around our classroom and imagine that you're going to bring, I don't know, a prospective student or your parents or maybe your own grandchildren in 30 or 35 years, right? You're going to bring people to this space and talk about how it functioned as a classroom. What would you say? What objects would you want to point to? What events would you want to talk about in order to bring people into the classroom? Or, you know, if that feels a little too personal, like they're going to mediate you and your performance as a teacher, which might actually be slightly creepy, but cool. Um, you could have them do an outside space, right? You could send them out to kind of do an anthropological thing, explaining what campus was like when they were here while they were taking classes. At one point in the podcast, you talk about the Rockford Morning Star, and um, your companion is talking about how the Rockford Morning Star functioned like the social network of its time. And for someone like me who studies the rhetoric of social media and the way that social media mediates identity and work and collaboration, the first place my mind went was, what an idea, right? To have students today take a look at how both social networks are mediating or archiving their presence, but also maybe to look at how their lives are being represented by themselves, um, by the social media network. You know, like Facebook chooses to show me events from my past, for example. And it even asks me sometimes like, Hey, do you want to see more of these events from your past? Cause we can bring them up in your newsfeed if you like. Um, you could have them think about to what degree these records are permanent or stable, right? Who will control these records? Do they have their own control of these records? To what degree do they control these records? And maybe even have them compare it against what the quote unquote official record says about them. You know, my Facebook feed is telling a very different story about me than my birth certificate and my social security card and my marriage license are telling about me in the public United States records. So that could be a great direction to take it to. At one point, you talk about the role that privilege may have played in the survivorship of certain documents about your house or the family that lived in that house. And you say something to the effect of privilege tends to erase certain disempowered groups from history. And while I think there's absolutely some validity to that, you know, I, I really saw that firsthand working as a tour guide at Monticello. So much of what we know about the slaves does not come from official written records. Um, you know, there's only so much you can learn from a written roster of which slaves lived on the plantation and were married and had children and so forth. But I also wonder if maybe for purposes of thinking about assignments, maybe the way to think about this is how privilege and other socioeconomic factors mediate um, the way that we have to preserve our histories, right? I'm thinking of things like the enslaved peoples of Monticello have very rich oral histories that have been passed down orally in storytelling through generations. And um, the people at the Thomas Jefferson Foundation who are working to try and find the descendants of the enslaved people of Monticello have found that those stories, even hundreds of years later, are remarkably accurate. 
um, both to the accounts made by more privileged people who came to the plantation and described what they saw, but also match the archaeological records. Um, or as another example, um, I come, my mother's Hawaiian, and the Hawaiian people preserved a lot of their history through dance. And even when the missionaries and the government outlawed um, the hula dancing, they took it kind of underground and would practice it in basements. Or um, during the early 20th century, a lot of the dance practices survived in tiki bars where hula dancers could make a living um, doing hula dancing. So I'm interested in these ways that people find tactical ways to get their history passed along, right? Um, maybe having access to a camera is just as much a tactic as, you know, um, passing down a story. Maybe there's an assignment here to be made for students about what the official records show, you know, what do um, documents like draft cards and birth certificates and newspapers, what story do they tell about us? versus what are the stories that we're trying to create for ourselves, right, through social media or through the digital archive of literacy narratives, or by um, filling in the gaps of a genealogy story by talking to older relatives who maybe remember things, or going to particular places like your house. So that might be an interesting way to get the assignment um, tweaked in a way that thinks about multimodality, thinks about the role of the digital and how the digital is in some ways a way to pass on information and is in some ways ephemeral, and to think about modes and access to modes. Um, you know, things like access to photography has dramatically expanded with the advent of the smartphone, but smartphones are not ubiquitous, especially in developing nations. So thinking about all of those things and what the implications are for the history that we're making and the history that we research. Finally, I wanted to think about this idea of the ambient environment, right? The idea that Jody was talking about that we use sound to mediate and to communicate stories, but sometimes I think we kind of chase silence, right? And clean noise. Even for this clip that I'm sending to you, I did some noise reduction to try and make it as clear and polished as possible. And I wonder if maybe that itself could be an assignment idea. So not just having students go around to collect ambient noise um, and make an audio postcard of their day, which I have had them do, and they seem to really like that assignment and respond to how rhetorical it is to mediate their day or their routine through sound, but maybe to have that um, more actively translated, right? Maybe even have them do like a podcast um, kind of thing where they use that ambient sound to layer together with voiceover or interviews that help to communicate their day. So to do something closer to what I think you were doing, which is to try and layer in stories and experiences that I think are happening a lot in your head, right? These these encounters you're having with this house and this these people who lived in it, it's happening a lot mentally. And to verbalize that or to communicate it through interviews or sound, I think is a very different experience. And then suddenly what was just an audio postcard becomes a great chance to become either an actual podcast or maybe even something for the digital archive of literacy narratives. Um, and students could kind of study each other's or even collect them, right, from particular neighborhoods or people in their lives that are important. That was Jen Michaels from The Ohio State University. And with that, we're at the end of the episode. Special thanks to my guests, Jody and Jen, and everyone who loves exploring history. I'll put a few of the pictures that I mentioned on my show notes, both at my home on writingcomments.org and my other home at Podigy. My theme music is by Cactus May, and the song you're hearing now is Blue Lightning by Disco Dan, available for free at the video game remix site Overclocked Remix, that's ocremix.org. The show is licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. 
Look for more podcasts on rhetoric and composition at the Facebook group called, you guessed it, Podcasts in Rhetoric and Composition. There's some really cool stuff there. I'm Kyle Stedman recording, you guessed it, in my house in Rockford, Illinois, where we're having a bit of a warm snap here at the end of July, but I know we can get through it because for goodness sakes, Midwest summers are amazing. If you've ever lived in Florida, you know what I mean. Contact me with your comments, your questions, your suggestions for new shows at plugsplaypedagogy at writingcommons.org or on Twitter where I'm at kstedman. For instance, in future episodes, we're going to be talking about creative writing. We're going to be talking about video pedagogies, and those are specifically due to people like you who reached out and said, hey, I know something about something. Let's talk about it and share it with other people. So please share. And you know, I'm also especially interested if you're using any of the ideas you've heard in this show or any of my other episodes. I mean, how are you being inspired? This is Plugs Play Pedagogy.